Welcome to the sermon podcast of First Church of Christ, where our goal is to lead generations into a life-changing, ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. Well, good morning, First Church of Christ. It's good to be with you. As Pastor Brandon said, my name is Tom Fry. Some of you uh, may remember me from being in the community for over the years. I uh, grew up on the J. Adams County line, spent many years working in radio uh, in Adams and J. Counties. And uh, um, about four and a half years ago, Jonathan, my son, and my wife and I moved just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. And um, we love it down there, but we do miss everyone back here. And so it's always good when we can come back into our old stomping grounds and share. Um, but Pastor Brandon and I were talking about this series on grief, and he invited me to come and share this morning. Uh, so much of what was in the slides was very relatable, even grief being necessary but messy, and um, and how it strengthens us. But, you know, strength is is brought on by resistance, and, and that's not necessarily always fun, right? But um, that's kind of my journey. People ask often how I got into music and how I got into ministry, and I always say the short answer is kicking and screaming. But I always say if you want to make God laugh, you tell him what you're not going to do. Because we, you know, we can plan and plan and plan, but God has, Ephesians 2.10 says, a plan that he has preordained for us. And... Um, I was a good planner. I knew where I wanted to work. I knew where I wanted to live. I knew how I wanted to use my music, which was just leading worship in my little country church outside of Bryant. But when I was in college, um, our pastor died right before I graduated college. And I had learned to play guitar and started writing songs and came home. And his son filled the pulpit temporarily for 13 years. And he had been a full-time touring Christian artist, and, and he's in this little church of about 40 people in Bryant, and here comes this guy fresh out of college writing songs and playing the guitar. And he started mentoring me when I didn't know that's what he was doing. And then he started shoving me out of the nest when I did not want to be shoved out of the nest. I was very comfortable where I was. But God does not care about our comfort. He cares about our obedience. And so I finally decided my plans were really good, and I really liked them, but, but God was, was creating this opportunity for music ministry. And so in this season, I needed to steward it well until I could buy the radio station, which was my plan. So I started to attend some conferences, and it was there that I heard a man speak, and he said, if you want to plan your life, God will let you do that. But if you want God to plan your life, you need to let go of your plans, take up your cross, and follow him. And this immediate wave of conviction came over me. And I began to pray, okay, God, you know, if I'm planning my life, show me where it is. And it was like, boom, 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 boom. I was a planner. So then I had to work to unplan my life, and that was very unsettling. Uh, but it was good. It's good to be unsettled. And um, I also continued to attend conferences. And I remember 
hearing over and over and over again at these conferences, you need to learn your story. You need to be able to share your story. And I did not want to share my story because it scared me to share my story. First of all, I didn't want to sound like I was a victim. Second of all, I didn't want to throw anybody under the bus. And third of all, I didn't figure anybody wanted to hear about my troubles because we've all got troubles, every one of us. You know, but I was not understanding that our story has nothing to do with the crud we've walked through. Our story has to do with the fact that we have a Redeemer who has made available healing for us. And when we can share our story in that lens, it is powerful and effective. Revelation 12, 11, talking about the martyrs in the end times, says that they overcame the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. When we can share our testimony, when we can share our story through the lens of what Jesus has done for us, it is powerful. I was telling the first service, I'm old enough that I can remember when you could barely find a gas station open on Sunday mornings. I'm old enough to remember when it was assumed that you had a church family. And even if you didn't, if you had trouble, people would say, oh, man. My life's a wreck. I've got to get back into church. Nowadays, most people don't get that. But we have an opportunity to be the church and to be light. One of the men in my small group recently reminded us that there's no such thing as darkness. There's only the absence of light. And as Christians, we are light bearers and we need to go into our community and love like Jesus loved. 1 Peter 3, 5 says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ Jesus. So that implication is that we are living examples of Christ and people are seeing something different in us and they want what they see and they ask. We need to be people of light. So our story is not our mess. Our story is our healing, but our enemy wants to convince us it is our mess. He uses words associated with our mistakes, our aches, our grief, our abuse, whatever it was that has been done to us or that we've done to ourselves or we've just experienced because we live in the fall. And he will seize upon those words and he will use them to validate our hurts and our fears and, and, and just grow our grief exponentially. The scripture says that he roars around like a roaring like lion. He is not a lion. He's like a lion. And my pastor back in Nashville says, you know when a lion roars? When he wants to intimidate. Because when he's stalking you, he is quiet. Our enemy wants to intimidate us in, into silence by using words and ideas that validate our grief to keep us silent. And so then we become we into this bargaining stage that we're talking about today where we try to control our grief and we try to tell God how we're going to deal with it. But we cannot control this chaos that we are born into or that we have fallen into. And so when we when we try to control it, all we do is constrict our world smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until we are living inside of ourselves. And when we do that, the enemy dictates the narrative of our mind. And we are not effective in living like people of light. So the whole reason why 
I do this thing, why, why I write songs and do concerts and, and speak and write blogs and life coach and do our deliberate family events is precisely because I have learned my greatest weapon to push back against the darkness is to use what I have learned through Jesus' redemptive work in my life to share it with others because I am not unique. We all are wounded. We all are broken and we all are in need of, of a savior, but we are all predisposed, I think, to want to deal with our grief on our own terms because it's painful. Sometimes it's embarrassing. And so we need to let go of that and, um, and surrender it to God. So I was thinking about this message today as we were, as Brandon and I were talking, and um, I was thinking there's, in my life, there was three steps to dealing with this grief. So the first one was just learning to get alone with God and to know his voice. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. We need to spend time abiding. John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. We try to produce fruit sometimes. And then we beat ourselves up because we're not producing fruit. But we're not the producers. We are only the bearers. Jesus produces it through us when we abide in him. And so learning to abide, learning to, to rest in him, learning to find solitude in him is so important. That's what Jesus did. Jesus would, would serve and pour himself out, and then he would go and be alone with God and get filled up. And that's what we need to do. I heard a pastor recently say, when we don't get solitude, we crave isolation. And we've all just been through this period of isolation, and it stinks. Right? And we are called to not forsake gathering together. Because it's in that fellowship, I believe, where we learn and we grow and we, we hear stories and we, we get sharpened, iron sharpens iron. And so it's important that we, we do not isolate, but that we live in community and that we abide with Jesus. And so, so learning to find solitude with Jesus is so important because, like, again, when we, when we don't do that, we try to control the chaos and it is not controllable. So... When we started out, you know, we became, became the Fry Family Band, and now the, the band is my drummer, Eric, and my son, Johnny, and my soon-to-be daughter-in-law, Monet. My daughters used to sing with us. My son-in-law sang with us. But my intention was not to have a family band. My intention, Lisa and I, were just to, to try to break these cycles that we were raised in, try to set a different trajectory for our lives. Lisa, my wife, is the youngest of three, and her parents divorced when she was a year old. Um, her dad was never around, and on the rare occasions when he was, it was a really scary thing for her. He never paid child support, so her mom had to work two and sometimes three jobs to support her children. So her mom was never around. So Lisa grew up without the presence, really, of, of parents in her life. My, my situation was different, but it was still broken. My parents were married 55 years when my dad passed away in January. But throughout my childhood and well into my adulthood, there was this cycle of filing for divorce and then reconciling and then kind of the calm before the storm, and then it escalated to where it started all over again. That was the cycle that I was raised in. And we knew that we wanted something different, and so we used the word deliberate over and over and over again, which is where our ministry name comes from. Because we wanted to deliberately make decisions to help our children have a more 
stable home and life. Now, we are not perfect parents. We've made plenty of mistakes. But we wanted our kids to know when we prayed over them before they were even born, before, before we were having children, we prayed that they would love God, that they would love people, and that they would have a heart to serve. That was our prayer for our children. So we did not set out to do this ministry thing. Like I said, I had my life all planned. So when, but we, we decided to do life together as a family. And so when I would go out and start singing, the kids would go along, and eventually that became the family band. And um, so that was, that was kind of our story as far as, you know, how this all started. But um, I realized with my dad, he was, he was after he passed, I learned that he carried with him a pretty significant father wound through his whole life. Not only that, but my dad was um, really wounded by the little church, by religion. And he thought he could not be good enough. And he saw these people who, who lived out of religion and, and barked orders to him about how, what to do and what not to do. And he said, I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And he left the church when I was eight. And I remember praying for years and years and years for my dad to know Jesus. And I said, Lord, even if I have to die in order to make that happen, please make that happen. I want my dad to know you. I remember praying that as a little boy. My mom, the wound that she carried into their marriage was that there is a generational spirit of division in her family. So it ended up when we decided to try to break this cycle uh, because I saw I saw this division trickling into my home, into my my relationship with my wife and with my children, and so we set up a couple small boundaries. They weren't very big; they weren't anything radical, but they were immediately noticed, and the tension escalated for six months until we found ourselves estranged from my parents, and that was so difficult. And I remember thinking, man, if I could have just said this differently. If I could have just done that differently, that's bargaining. That is bargaining with our grief. When I was um, preparing for this message today and I was looking up the stages of grief and I was, I was reading about bargaining and I found this website called verywellmind.com and I just want to read you something that I read on there. It says, this feeling of helplessness can cause us to react in protest by bargaining which gives us a perceived sense of control over something that feels so out of control. So again, we're trying to control the chaos. That's what I was doing. While bargaining, we also tend to focus on our personal faults and regrets. That was very relatable. We might look back at our interactions with the person we are losing and note all the times we felt disconnected or may have caused them pain. It is common to recall times when we may have seen, we said things that we did not mean and wish we could go back and behave differently. We also tend to make the drastic assumption that if things had played out differently, we would not be in such an emotionally plain, painful place in our lives. All so relatable in trying to bargain with God on how we're going to handle our grief. God's already got it covered. But it's so personal that we have a hard time surrendering it. So 
in breaking this cycle of grief, like I said, abiding, getting solitude with God, that is so important. The second one is surrender. We, we read about that. Pastor Brandon talked about that. We even sang about that this morning in our song, Surrendering. Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says, um, He became sin who knew no sin so that we could become his righteousness. We, uh, you know, I always learned that, that Jesus washed away my sin. He took my sin. But when I understood that he became our sin so that we could become his righteousness, I mean, that, that's a game changer. That is so much different. He took those wounds onto himself. And so when we surrender, that's kind of what that looks like. We, we, we have to surrender this idea that, that we have a right to control our grief and we control our hurts. I had a dear friend of mine when I was beginning to get this about eight or ten years ago, stick his finger in my chest and he said, Tom, the thing that you need to understand is that when you surrendered your life to Jesus and he took away your sins, he did not just take them. He bought them. He became them. He owns them. And he didn't ju doesn't just own your sin. He owns everything associated with it. He owns your grief, your pain, your bitterness, your anger, your disappointment, your frustration, your struggle to forgive. He owns it all, and you have no right to claim it. Not only that, but those people that hurt you, he owns that stuff too. So you have no right to cling to that offense. Whether they have repented or not, whether they have apologized or not, whether they have received the free grace that Jesus offered or not, he still bought that and you have no claim on it. Whoa. So I began the process of trying to figure out how to let go of this, but it becomes so much a part of what I was doing and who I was and my identity that I, I didn't quite know how to do this. So surrender for me was about a five, six, seven-year process of just God peeling away the layers and loving me and fathering me through it. But if we want to surrender, we need to pray like Jesus prayed, and that was, you know, God, I really don't want to do this thing that you're calling me to, but your will, not mine, be done. It's okay if we tell him what we think, but then we need to say, but I trust you to do whatever. And I will do whatever. That's surrender. That's point number two. Point number three is being willing to love people where they are, not where they should be, because none of us are where we should be. The slide up there said that, that, that dealing with grief is messy, and it is. So we need to be willing to step into that mess. Proverbs 14.4 says that where the stalls are clean, there is no grain, but with many oxen come an abundant harvest. Now, we live in an agriculture community here, so that metaphor is not lost on y'all. I told the first church, I said, you know, we had horses, and, and my dad would never clean the stalls out. When, when, you know, every morning just go out and feed and clean them out. He would wait till they got so full that the horses would begin to rub their heads on the mow. And then he had three things. He had a, a manure spreader, a pitchfork, and a teenage boy. So that was my job. And when I got done with that job, it was no, there was no need to explain what I had been doing because that stuff sticks to you. And that's the way we need to love. We need to love people where they are, not where they should be, and not be afraid of what sticks to us. 
Pastor Brandon talked about Zacchaeus and Jesus loving him right where he was and going to his house and eating with him, which was a form of intimacy. It still is, but in that culture, that was huge. And so when he was going to, you know, to sit and eat with Zacchaeus, that was a big deal. He was engaging him where he was and not where he should be and right in his mess. And he did not care what people thought. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, it's going to require us being messy. And we can't worry about what people think or say about us. We just have to do what he's called us to do. And that means be light and salt. First Peter 3.15 says, be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so that implies that we're living out this call. And people see it and they notice it. Um, so when I began to immerse into this, I began to pray, God, how do I do this? You know, I want to reconcile with my parents. I tried and tried and tried. I tried to reconcile with my dad, thinking that we were both the men of the house and we needed to lead through it together. But the reality of it is, I didn't really want to deal with my mom. There was, a, there was a spirit of division that was prevalent in my mom's family that was four generations deep. So, so after the estrangement happened, me and my sister that's closest to me were on one side, and my parents and my other sister were on the other side. And my mom's family was the same way. There was five siblings split into three factions. My grandma's family, there was four siblings split into two factions. My great-grandmother's family, there was two siblings split into two factions. This is a generational spiritual stronghold. So I began to pray and ask God how, how to break that. And, and I did not know. We moved to Nashville. I didn't tell my parents we were moving because we had, I tried to engage and, and they would just turn away and, and I didn't know what to do. And so I just thought, well, you know, I'm released of this. That's what I told myself. I told myself all kinds of things. Spirit over spiritualized things, thinking that it was truth, but in reality, it was my way of bargaining with how I was going to deal with my pain. So we moved, and um, I was in Detroit on a tour, and, and my past or my, my aunt, my dad's sister, came and she said, Tom, I want you to know because I know you don't have any contact with your parents, you probably don't know this, but your dad is going to have to start dialysis soon. He is not well. And I found myself really grieving. God, how am I going to do this? How is he going to come to know you? I've prayed and prayed and prayed, and this is impossible. I would walk back to my barn and pray, God, I don't know how this is going to happen. But my dad would love my property here. I so bad want him to see this, but I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't even know how we're going to reconcile. But I would pray these things, and I pray for my dad's salvation. And after I learned that, I finally sat down and wrote my dad a letter. I'd written him a bunch of letters after we moved that I had never sent because I recognized they were unhealthy, but I didn't know how to communicate in a healthy way to him about what was going on. So I finally wrote him a letter, and it just I wrote it like somebody I used to know if I found out they were having some health issues. Tried to encourage him tried to speak blessing into his life and just open up a door. I never heard anything back from him. That would have been in um, September, October of 2019. So 
I'm really feeling led to re-engage, and I'm telling my wife that I'm feeling this way. And it scared her because she had seen me get hurt over and over and over again. She saw my kids get hurt over and over and over again, and she'd experienced that hurt as well. So she wasn't quite sure. But I, I kept telling her, this is different. This is different. I know I'm being called to them. And so December 13th of 2019, there's a trail my wife and I jog several mornings uh, a week. And so I drive up and down this road like back and forth eight or ten times a week. And someone had nailed a freshly painted sign naming the exact spirit that I had learned that was causing this division in my family. You know, we sometimes we pray for a neon sign, but I got a freshly painted one. It was not there and I'm, the day before, and I'm like, oh, my goodness. Okay, God, I'm seeing this validation. So I get home from my jog, take my shower, grab my coffee, sit down to check my messages, and there's a message that I have from a lady who I had sang at her church 10 years prior, had not heard from her in 10 years, and I got this message from her, and it said this, For by grace you are saved by faith, Ephesians 2.8. Grace is more than unmerited favor, though it is most certainly unmerited, says the Lord. My grace coming into your life and changing you from death to life is my power, presence, and glory invested in you by my Spirit. If I did not place my heart in you, salvation would not and could not be eternal, for it would be dependent upon you. Yes, I have called you to work alongside me. But it is my grace and not your wisdom that gets the work done. Therefore, all the glory, praise, and honor belongs to me. I messaged her back and I'm like, Leslie, thank you so much for that message. But what prompted you to send it? And I was thinking she was going to say, oh, it's just one of those Facebook forward things. I hit Messenger and sent it out to a bunch of people. She said, Tom, I was just praying. And God brought you to mind and told me I needed to tell you this. And did you catch what she said? She said that, that I'm inviting you to work alongside me. My problem in dealing with my grief, and if you all struggle with this, your problem dealing with grief is that you're trying to invite God into your way. You're trying to say, okay, God, this is the way I'm going to deal with it. So here, come along with me. But God doesn't say that. He says, you let go of it and you walk with me as I deal with it. We have to surrender control because we don't own the deed of our grief. So I'm like, whoa, okay, this is validation. Within the same hour, I see the sign on the tree. I get this message. So I begin to research the spirit, and I find these counselors who deal specifically in this issue. And so I begin to watch YouTube videos and try to learn how I can do it. And I finally realize this is bigger than I know how to handle. I need some counseling. So I found their website, and I called them, and I talked to as a husband and wife team. They counsel over the phone, and um, I talked to the wife, and she said, I can get you in next week. And she said, yes, I think I can help you. So I said, okay. So by this time, it's March. So March 24th, which is my mom's birthday. It's also my sister's birthday and my grandson's birthday. How cool is that? So it's a big day in our, our family. But on March 24, 2019, I am leading worship in Kentucky. 
And the pastor stands up to give the message. And when he's in the message, he says, I want to challenge you all to pray and ask God if there are any idols in your life. Because they can creep in so subtly. The enemy can worm his way in and you don't even know it. So I want to challenge you to pray and ask the Lord if you have any idols and if he would identify them to you. And I want to challenge you that today too. As you're dealing with, the only way you can deal with grief is really to surrender it. And when we don't, we make grief an idol. And so I'm driving home from Kentucky and I'm like, okay, God, you know, I've served you for a long time. I've known you for a long time. I've worked in ministry for a long time. I think I've got this taken care of. But if I've got anything in my life that looks like an idol, let me know. The next Sunday, March 31st, well, so, so then I have, three days later, I have my first counseling session. So the counselor's letting me tell my story and asking me some questions. And at the end of our session, she says, she calls me a man of God. She says, so man of God, you grieve for your dad, but you've written your mom off. And I said, well, yeah, really, that's, that's true. You know, that divisive spirit comes through her line. And in my, my mind, you know, I cloaked it in spiritualism. I would say, I'm like the prodigal son in reverse. I'm sitting on the, on the porch and I'm waiting for them to come back. But, you know, I need to meet them with grace when they do. But I can't go drag them out of the pig slop. You know, I would try to find verses to justify how I dealt with this. But the reality of it was God was calling me to immerse in the mess. And so she said, I said, yeah. And that was really hard to admit, but it was true. So, so then the next Sunday, March 31st, seven days after I was leading worship in Kentucky, at our home church, our pastor says, different denomination, different state, one week later, I want to challenge you to pray against idols in your life. Ask the Lord if you have any to reveal them because they can sneak in so subtly you don't even know it. And the enemy will seize upon an area of your life and have a stronghold. Now my prayer changes. I'm like, okay, God, you have got my attention. So what is my idol? The next, the next Wednesday, I have my next counseling session. And, and she says, okay, I told her I was going to be in Indiana the next week. She said, okay, I want you to I want you to talk to your parents. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta connect with both of them, not just your dad. They're they're married. You've got to engage them like that. And she said, "I want you to look at your mom, and I want you to tell her that you love her, that you're sorry for your part in the estrangement, and that you forgive her for hers." Okay, this is getting tougher. But I trusted what she said. So the next Sunday, April 7th, I'm leading worship in my sister's church in Burn First Missionary Church. Guess what the pastor has to say that Sunday? Yeah. He says, I want you to pray against idols because they can sneak in so subtly and the enemy can seize upon it. Before you even know it, he creates a stronghold. And he went on to talk about Jonah. And he talked about how Jonah created an idol of his nationalism because the Ninevites had so persecuted and hurt the Isra Israelites 
that he wanted to write them off. He didn't care if they lived or died. He didn't want to go and call on them because he thought it was hopeless and he resented what they had done to his people. And I'm sitting in the pew thinking, my mom is my Ninevite. And that's hard to stand up here and confess to y'all. But if we want to engage people in their mess, we also have to be comfortable with our own. Not staying there and wallowing in it and playing the victim, but getting comfortable with where we are and who we are and how God has dealt with us in our mess. We've played the plastic Jesus game in the American church for far too long. We need to be real. We have no time to play games because the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. So after church, we prayed and prayed and prayed and I went to visit my parents and I told my mom exactly what the counselor said and she received the first two very well. But the third one, not so much when I told her that I forgave her for her part. And so as it was, by the time the story got back to my, my other sister with whom we we're estranged, it was, it was quite a bit different than the way I remember it. And there was a lot of lashing out voicemails and emails and such. And it really started to mess my mind and rock my world, you know. And I'm thinking, God, is this, is she right? Am I the problem? And so again, I started going back to exactly what my friend Leslie messaged me. How I'm going to fix it. How I'm going to immerse in this and deal with this. And, and got out of that mindset of inviting, joining God in what he was doing. I was going back to trying to invite him until to, to, to my way of figuring things out. And so we were back up uh, for a concert in, in, in July. So like, what's that, April, May, June, July, like three months later. So during that three months, I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to talk to my mom and I'm going to tell her, you know, I didn't mean to upset you. And this is what I meant. And this is the heart with which I said it. And I was going to try to smooth things over. And I went to my parents' house. And I saw my mom. And the first thing I felt the father whisper in my head was, you walk in the consistency of the love you professed for her and you don't say a thing. So that's what I did. Again, it goes back to that abiding and, and being sensitive to God's. And I don't always hear it. I screw up so much. But when we are really pressing into what God has for it, for us and we're abiding and we're getting that solitude, we hear that stuff. That doesn't make me unique. He's singing and speaking over and into you all. But you have to plug into him and be willing to surrender your grief and your offense. And, and he'll, man, he'll. Scripture says the Lord corrects those he loves. And I felt his correction and I felt his love through all of this. So it was about a year of uh, finding our feet, you know, with my parents and just trying to figure out how to navigate this thing. And, and in the spring of uh, 
about a year later, March of uh, 2020, I'm talking to my dad on the phone, and, and I was telling him there was turkey in my backyard. We live out in the country, and, and we hunted together. I had not hunt, hunted since we had been estranged, but we would hunt together. And, and so my dad kind of dips his toe in the water, and he says, well, I wonder what an out-of-state hunting license would cost in Tennessee. I said, I don't know, Dad, but I can find out. Do you want to come? Yeah, I think I would. I prayed so many times, which wasn't really. That was just a blessing God gave me to let my dad see where I am, to see my place. So Eric, bless his heart, literally not the southern figurative sort of passive-aggressive, you're an idiot thing. <laughs> but literally, bless his heart, he, he drove my parents down, and they spent the weekend on Mother's Day weekend of 2020. And Dad and I went back to the turkey blind. And there's a picture that they have of Dad and I in the turkey blind. And, you know, I'm going back there, and again, I'm thinking about inviting God into my way of doing things. And I'm like... God, I have prayed to talk to my dad, and I didn't know how I was going to. And now we're going to be in the back of my property in a turkey blind. He can barely walk. He can barely see. I have a captive audience. And God said, you just love him. And you just be present with him. So that's what I did. And I kept thinking, man, am I hearing this right? Am I missing an opportunity? But I know God's telling me just to be present. And so, you know, with COVID, we didn't have a lot of concerts, but we were, we were fortunate that we had, we had eight concerts in, in 2018, and seven of them were in Indiana and Ohio, which made it really convenient. So mom and dad came to like four of those and, and got to hear me share. And, and the, the thing that I realized the first time they came, I did not know they were coming. It was a surprise to me. And right before I went on stage, I realized everything I wanted to share with him in the turkey blind was what I had prepared to share with that congregation, not knowing that he was going to be there. And so we began to, to, to rekindle things. And I remember telling Eric so many times when we were driving from show to show, if I could just have one good year with my dad, it would make up for all the bad ones. And that's what I got. So December 8th, my, or December 18th, my mom calls me and says, Dad is in the hospital. And, and uh, I'm thinking, you know, all this isolation stuff, and I'm not going to be able to see him. And, you know, he's going to die, and I've not got to talk to him about God. And I call him, and he's like, man, I feel fine. I don't know why I'm in here. He gave me a pint of blood, and I feel good. And... I felt like God said, don't you dare talk to him about me. Saturday was the same thing. Sunday morning, I, I, Saturday I called him, same thing. Sunday morning, as soon as I woke up, I heard the father whisper in my head, today's the day to talk to your dad about me. So that afternoon I called him. But, you know, before when I would talk to my dad, I would do that like fundamentalist mindset thing that I was raised in where if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? Do you know where you would spend eternity? And my dad would give me the hand. And I, you know, entering into his mess, right? 
loving him where he was, not where he should be, because none of us are where we should be. So I, first thing, I, I, we, we talked a bit, and I said, well, Dad, I want to talk to you about something. He said, okay. I said, first of all, I want you to know that I love you, and I think you're a good man. I said, secondly, I saw you get wounded by the church and leave. And what happened to you was wrong. You had every right to want to leave that church. But that has nothing to do with Jesus, Dad. That has to do with religion. And I've heard you say for years that you didn't want to go to church because you didn't want to be a hypocrite. But Dad, Scripture says that Jesus became our sin so that we could become his righteousness. We all fall short, and we cannot be good enough, and that does not make us hypocrite. That makes us human. And if you, if you surrender to Jesus, he becomes your good enough. And that doesn't make you a hypocrite. That makes you his kid. Now, we went on to talk about some other stories that I don't have time to share, but it was, it was personal and it was relatable to our story together and the gospel. And he did not show his cards, but it was a really good conversation. And we chit-chatted about other things, and, and uh, I felt really good. But then he went from there. He'd gotten weakened in the bed, so he went to rehab, and at rehab he was giving up. And I would call dad and he couldn't see and he was isolated and he couldn't use his phone very well because of trying to feel his way around and he would cry and he would just use language that was consistent with giving up. So I called mom and I said, mom, I have no dates on my calendar in January. Dad is not going to make it where he is. He may not make it at home. But if you want to bring him home, I will come home and we'll spend a, you know, a couple, three weeks and see if we can't get him back on his feet and not at least he can die in his own bed with people around him. So I went up in early January and I was there about two and a half weeks and we had some good days and bad days. Um, bad days were not this. It was just health, bad health days. And, and finally... Friday night, late in January, dad was pretty restless and not feeling well all day. And he went to bed and I kept going in and trying to help him adjust to get comfortable. He could not get comfortable. And about eight o'clock, he called for mom and I. And he reached his hand out and he took our hands and he said, I want you two to know that I love you. And I thank you for everything you've done for me but I'm not going to make it through the night. And I need you to be okay with this. And he said, and I'm ready to pray to receive Jesus. And I said, well, dad, prayer is just a conversation with God. I said, you can do that on your own. It's nothing about the, it's not a formula. It's just trusting him with who you are and surrendering what you've done to him and, I said, you can do that on your own. We'll be here with you. But I said, if you want me to lead you in prayer, I will do that. And he said, I want you to lead me. 
I've often wondered if that prayer of that little boy saying, I will die if it takes my dad to know you. I've often wondered if that was the death of our relationship. I don't know. I had a non-believing friend who was on a prayer chain just because he's married to a friend of ours that was praying for dad. And after dad passed away, he said, maybe your dad had to experience your forgiveness before he understood that he even had a shot with Jesus. I thought that was pretty profound. I do not know that that's true, but I thought that was just a good indication of why we need to love people where they are and being willing to engage in their mess. I've had people tell me your dad would not be in heaven if it were not for what you've done, and I cannot say that that is true. I think God was working on his heart, and I know people were praying for him. He may have called for my mom. He may have prayed in the stillness of his own bedroom, and I would not have known it this side of heaven. But what I do know is because I was willing to immerse in his mess, because I had understood that my grief was more important to surrender than to cling on to, that God blessed me with the opportunity to pray with my dad, to have closure and to know for certain where he is today. 19 hours after he prayed that prayer, he got to meet Jesus face to face. And we were with him when he did. So I don't know where you are today, but I know because you're human, you've all been hurt. You've all been on the receiving of abuse or you've, you've abused yourself or, or you've struggled with addiction or whatever. I don't know, but I know you just need to live like this and trust God with it and join him on his journey and quit trying to dictate how he can enter into your story, but you need to enter into his. So, We have, um, you know what I love is the story of Joseph. At the end of Genesis, his dad dies and his brothers had sold him into slavery and he's now the second most powerful man in Egypt and his dad's no longer there to be a buffer and his brothers say, oh crud, dad's gone, we're toast. And do you remember what Joseph says? He says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. But there's a second part of that verse that is so important, and that is what happens when we deal with our grief is the second half. Because he wasn't hanging on his right to be offended. What God meant for evil, or what they meant for evil, God used for good so that many lives would be saved. When we are willing to live out of the abundance of, and the victory of what God has done for us and how he has dealt with our grief so that we don't have to, we can point people to the victory we have in him and lives will be changed because of that. It is so important. If you want to change your culture, if you want to change Bluffton and Wells County, start living out of the victory that God has already made for you and let go of your offense. Quit beating yourself up for your mistakes. Quit holding grudges for those that have hurt you. And let Jesus deal with your grief. Thanks for listening to this podcast by First Church of Christ in Bluffton, Indiana. For more information, visit FCCFamily.com.